The thing with falling from 70,000 feet is that you get to fall for fucking ever. <laughs> like, like right. you have some time to think. He's like, okay, so we've only had ejection seats for a little while. What did we do before ejection seats that can get me out of this plane that won't cut my legs mm. off? And he's like, well, I'll open the canopy. Like, he used to sh- throw the canopy yeah. off, right? So he kind of knocks it. He throws the canopy out and whoosh, it sucks him out with his legs intact. <laughs> Great. And he's like, fantastic. But then he realizes his oxygen hoses and everything are still attached to the plane. He is still attached to the falling plane. And that's when he oh. blacks out. Oh, no. History. I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History. I'd like to Hello, and welcome to Hilf History. I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, and it's good to have you in the den. That's the Deluxe Edition Network. To hear other great podcasts in the den, follow the link in the show notes or go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. This episode is the conclusion of the Hilfing of Area 51. Right? We've had our ass grabbed and our nipples flicked, and it's time to get to the good stuff. (laughs) Now, in part one, my guest, Atlanta-based actress Lainey Payhouse and I, discussed how this top-secret airbase was built after World War II as a way of continuing what had been developed during the Manhattan Project. How the Cold War found the U.S. using former Nazi scientists to develop weapons and aircraft against the Soviets, who, of course, had their own team of former Nazi scientists. We discussed how most of the supposed alien spacecraft sightings, including the incident at Roswell, were not actually aliens, but in fact, top secret U.S. and enemy aircraft. Ahead, we're going to jump into the cockpit of some of these sexy-ass planes. We're going to crash a few of them and even get a chance to throw back some vodka shots with Nikita Khrushchev. It's a hell of a hilf. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Did you hear about the folks who were going to storm Area 51? Yeah, I did not follow up on that. I'm not going to lie. But I remember it was a whole thing. And I think they went, but then nothing like happened at all. Yeah, I think some people went. Um, I don't know. On the one hand, I'm like, if I would have had this history in my back pocket, maybe I would have gone. Right. I don't think I would have wanted to go had it been successful, though. No, you can't actually storm the place. I mean, you can't no, actually storm but like, the place. To go there and powwow, though, that would be fun. That'd be fun. Go camp. Yeah. Get arrested yeah. with a bunch of people for camping and trespassing. That sounds fine. Yeah. But yeah, you're not you're not running in there. I mean, in the idea that like, I think <laughs> I think that the quote was, if we all go there, like they can't stop all of us. And I was like, absolutely yes, they absolutely. Can stop it's a weapons every- factory. They can stop every single... What do you mean they can't stop all of you? Are you crazy? They have very few things they are able to do better than just stop a bunch of people from running in there. Right. Absolutely crazy. But yeah, I'd go. I'd like to watch. I feel like, too, you know the movie Independence Day? Yeah. Like, whenever, like, aliens, they're like, are aliens good? Are aliens, like, sweet little ETs that just want to eat candy with you and make world peace? Or are they, like, Predator, where they want to, like, make trophies out of our skulls? And because we don't really know... We should just play it safe. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know. Where would you, where do you land on that? Given an opportunity to encounter like an alien race for the first time, would you mm-hmm. volunteer for that? I think I would. I mean, I also watch like 
just enormous amounts of Star Trek and they're meeting new alien races every episode. Um. <laughs> and it goes really, sometimes they even get laid. Uh, yeah. And a lot of times it goes really fucking well. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I think too, you know, the Independence Day, the, the stripper who like day one heads to the top of the building with the sign welcome. Yes. And then yeah, yeah, they're yeah. like vaporized. I always kind of harken back to that because I'm like, I'd absolutely be the stripper with a welcome alien sign. Like, I think I think I'm more that. But then also, like, jokes on you because she goes ahead and gets vaporized before anything gets scary. Yeah, but also I feel like if they're going to be aggressive, generally, you'll know that right away. Like, yeah. We have taken a break. We had brought ourselves onto Area 51. We are now here. Area 51 exists. I am so excited to get back into this history, my friend. And I've got a story to start us off. And this is not just a great story. It's a great party. Yes. It's a story about it. I know, right? Um, So the date is now November 1955. Area 51 has existed as a place where we do top secret stuff for like eight months. Right. Mm-hmm. It's young, but there's bustling. People are moving and grooving. There's there's people digging. There's people building. There's engineers. There's stuff happening. And the way they all get to work every day is they fly in not from Las Vegas, but from Burbank, California. Well, Burbank is the best airport. <laughs> it is the best airport, actually, especially as a resident of L.A. Like it's very comfy. It's never it's that so busy. Small. <laughs> Last of celebrity sightings. Yes. Um, but, you know, that's where they're coming in because one of the things that they said, really, and you can understand this, too, like of all of the mysteries of Area 51, this is the least mysterious thing. They were <laughs> like, most of the people who work out here should not be from Las Vegas. Right. And everyone was like, right. <laughs> right? For all the reasons. Yep. Further away, the further away. We don't need you coming out here with your friends, showing them stuff. We don't need you to your other job to be in gambling, prostitution. Like, this mm-hmm. is not how, right? So they fly in every day from Burbank. And these guys need to unwind, okay? And on this particular day, November 16th, 1955, the flight that is coming from Area 51 back into Burbank, they are stoked because they're coming home to a party girl. And it's about damn time because they can't talk to nobody about what they're doing out there. You know what I mean? They don't have a lot of time off. And Lockheed, which is the, they're the company that's building a lot of the planes that they're doing their what have you's with mm-hmm. out there in Area 51 is like, let's have a party, girl. And so they get, and it is whining and dining and finally and needed. And one of the guys rocking out at this party, one of the guys who just needed this break big time is a guy named Bob Murphy. He's 25. He's a mechanic. From, like, World War II boss-ass mechanic. He's now a mechanic on these top-secret machines, which is super cool. And he gets too drunk. (laughs) He stays (laughs) out too late. And the next thing poor Bob Murphy knows is he comes to, in his apartment, because, you know, his apartment in Burbank, and his head hurts and his mouth is dry. And he looks at the clock and, fuck, he has missed his flight back to Area 51 by three hours. Oh, no. Oh, no, is right. And, like, this is 1955. Like, even if it wasn't Area 51, you don't exactly call right. somebody, <laughs> you know. And he's, like, he doesn't even know. And he's never done. This is not his character. He doesn't get drunk and miss work. He's never even been late. And he's just, like, oh, my fucking God. And he doesn't even bother going to the airport because he knows no one's <laughs> hanging out. You know what I mean? Right. They're not even going to wait for him. And he's, like, oh, shit. And he doesn't know what's going to happen next. So he just goes to breakfast, as one does. 
And he's sitting there eating his eggs, feeling all sad and guilty. So I'm so sorry for himself. His head probably still hurts. <laughs> and the radio behind the gal pouring coffee crackles to life and is like, oh, my God, there's been a plane crash. This is terrible. A C-54 has crashed in the mountains above Nevada, blah, blah, blah. And Bob Murphy just knows. I mean, dude just, like, feels it in his bones. Fuck. That is my flight. Yeah. He was absolutely correct. They presume the radio station even says we assume everyone's dead, and they're absolutely right. Everybody's dead. Poor Bob Murphy, 25-year-old, still hungover. Let's, like, stick a pin in that. Like, Uh all of this is still happening with, like, a horrible hangover. He's like, oh, my God. He just stands up and he leaves, and he goes back to his apartment, and he cries, right? Because these Uh are his friends, like, his good, best friends, and scared and guilty and confused, and he's pacing, and he's like, what the fuck? And he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to the bar. (laughs) Right? I'm going to go get a drink. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I can tell you right now that it'll be better if I get these tremors calmed down. Mm -hmm. So he, like goes to open the door to walk out and go to the bar and standing on the other side of the door with his like hand raised to knock is a guy in uniform who when he sees Bob Murphy is like oh like goes white oh my god because he thinks he's seeing a ghost because he was supposed to be on that plane exactly (laughs) he was on the manifest Somebody checked him in. All those people are dead, so we don't know why. Maybe they checked him in because they were like, he got really fucking drunk last night, and he's going to get in huge trouble. Like, we <laughs> like, maybe we can just help him out by putting him on the, you know, who knows? Maybe right. it was an accident. Maybe they thought, who knows? But yeah, that person had arrived at the door to inform his next of kin that he had died. Oh, oh no. Right? Fucking A. One of the reasons why I tell you this story is because earlier in part one, I told you about a story of those engineers at the BMW who the Mm -hmm. Russian military wined and dined and then kidnapped them. I felt like this was a nice story to like counterbalance that. Be like, yes, getting too drunk at a work function can get you in a gulag, Mm -hmm. but it can also save your life (laughs) from a plane crash. That's what happened to Seth MacFarlane, too. He was supposed to be on one of the planes that hit the World Trade Center. But really? he was I didn't over, know so he missed his flight. <gasps> I didn't know that. Yeah. Shit. I don't know. I don't know how I'd roll with something like that. Yeah. You know, like, I, I they say there's survivor's guilt, and mm-hmm. I could see falling on one side, uh, you know, either side of a line, which is like, right. I'm immortal. I now have a second chance at life. I'm going to eat cheese, uh, you know, for breakfast, and I'm going <laughs> to stop, you know, I'm going to live my life. Or just being like, that was too close of a call. Life is too precious. I am going to walk carefully over every curb and never eat a carb again, you know? Right. Well, and like, it's something like that. It's not necessarily a risky thing to do. You would, He was just going to work, you know, hopping on a plane, going somewhere. Absolutely. And by the way, there is no, in this story, suspicion of sabotage. Oh, it was okay. bad weather. As a matter of fact, it was kind of crazy. The pilot broke protocol and broke radio silence and called a tower and was like, it is snowy and I can't see. And he was afraid he had gone off course. And among the things that the people who got the call were doing was like, what the fuck? Who are you? <laughs> like, we don't see a, right. where are you going? We don't even know what there was a plane there. And then it was Yeah, over. that's my other thing. I'm like, you don't you have to like register flight plans and stuff? So there's yeah, no you do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Chumps do, not these guys. Um, and it's terrible. And also think about poor Bob Murphy, like, you can't talk about your life at all with anyone 
And right. now he's going through this like trauma and grief and he already loves to get drunk. Poor Bob. But also poor <laughs> Bob because and also poor Area 51, because in addition to losing these top engineers and all of their expertise is evidence of what they're doing is now scattered. Right. All over the C-54 itself, the plane they happen to be riding is just a transport plane. There's something secret about that. But them and their stuff and every fucking pencil cap in there is like yeah, arguably. Like, surely they're not like bringing home papers, uh, top secret documents, right? Like that all stays there, I I'm don't assuming. Think so. well, that's a very good point. And yet they're working. On, I mean, they're coming from Lockheed. That's part of the reason why they were in Burbank is because the, uh-huh. the people who make. So there might have been. Must have been because they hit that mountain fat. They closed down all the roads. They closed down all uh-huh. the air traffic. Like any of the press is like an airplane crashed up here. They were like, no, it didn't go home. I mean, it did, but it's not, don't worry about it. It was a weather balloon. Go home. Stop talking to us. <laughs> you know, just, Super <laughs> casual about it. Everyone believed them. <laughs> yes. yes. Very, very casual about it. But they, yeah, they block all the, and this is completely, I mean, it's, it's very embarrassing. And of course mm-hmm. they can't admit any fault and they you know that's why they don't talk about it for over 50 years but here's the thing laney what was in whatever briefcases they may have had on that plane (laughs) and whatever was in the brains of those scientists when they were sadly (laughs) destroyed right were the plans and the designs and the capacity to build this mafo sacco Baffum super duper <laughs> mega spy plane called the U2. Mm-hmm. This plane, girl, this is a pilf. This is a big pilf. Here is what here is what made the the U2 spy plane so super duper especially awesome, unlike any other plane that had ever been invented and why it was totally top secret. One, uh, it was new and interesting because it carried no weapons. The purpose of this spy plane was to spy. So it doesn't, like all the other planes were like, get in fast, drop bombs, get mm-hmm. out. Or get into a dogfight and be shooting guns and being able to quick maneuverability so you can get away mm-hmm. from an enemy and shoot. This plane had a totally different purpose and therefore a totally different design. So it was designed to go 70,000 feet the highest, I think commercial aircraft at that point were doing like 30, 35,000 feet uh-huh. still. This thing could go way, way higher, which meant that that was believed it can't be seen on radar and no one can shoot us. We know the other planes can't get to us, but even if they can get under us and shoot up, they're, they're mm-hmm. we're out of range from them. It makes us pretty impervious and maybe also totally invisible. Also, this thing carries cameras. Bitch and I mean, lady, I, this book. There's so much interesting <laughs> shit to Area 51. Like I would, I could spend an episode talking to you about these bitch and ass cameras and these bitch and ass guys <laughs> who like made these bitch and ass cameras because they had to be lightweight and they had to be able to take pictures from way far away from a moving thing. I mean, it's so fantastic. But they have these bitch and cameras, right? <laughs> that just aim down because their their whole thing is that they're gonna take pictures of what they fly over because they were like after World War II in Russia, we had the Iron Curtain. Like it was real hard mm-hmm. for us to get information but they said adorably there was no iron ceiling oh (laughs) so we could if we can get up there (laughs) and so clever so we can get up there we can do it and so the irony is that the the u2's first official test mission Mm -hmm. tragically was to fly over the crash of this c-54 and get pictures of it so they could see where it crashed, what it looked like, right. where all the shit had gone to make sure that they get it all. And maybe there was some question of whether or not it was shot down. I doubt that. But in any event, they would be able to see 
whatever they could see from there. And the look of this thing, I told you can go 70,000 feet. It does because it looked so different. When you look at the um, reports of UFOs, people mm-hmm. who called any given official agency reporting a UFO that then got to the CIA and the people who were working at Area 51, over half of them could be cross-referenced to the U-2, this particular spy plane. Mm-hmm. It just looks weird. And it's way up high. You know what I mean? And it's moving weird and it doesn't do what airplanes normally do. But that's what, what blew my mind was like 50%. Yeah. Well, so and also, rest, like, that's still a lot of shit. You don't know what's going on up there. It did the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Right. Right. Everybody looks at it and goes, what the fuck is that? Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, not sneaky. This C 54 with Bob Murphy's friends crashes. And everyone at Area 51 is thrown into this just like crazy, beautiful, tumultuous, emotional trauma. (laughs) There is so much great. Here's what happened. They set up Area 51. Then President Eisenhower, right? We got a whole new president. He's all into this. He's like, here's what I want. His order is I want aerial surveillance of the Soviet Union. So that's Mm -hmm. what I want. That's my order. Make me a big ass thing that goes up high and can surveil Russia. Go ahead. And he said to do that, there's going to be three entities that are going to work together. These are the Mm -hmm. three that I'm authorizing. One is the CIA, which is brand new. We're very excited. (laughs) The CIA is going to do, tell us who we're looking at, who to spy on, what to take pictures of, why that's important. That's their job. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to get the um, Lockheed I mentioned them. This aerospace, they make great things. They make great weapons. They make great planes. They're going to they're gonna design the machine that can get to the people and places that the CIA tells us they want to get to. And then the third is the Air Force. They're going to fly the fucking things. Okay. So these are the three. All y'all go out there. We'll send you a ping pong table and a couple of hookers. You have fun. <laughs> I'm, Daddy's very proud of you. Uh, you know, good luck out there. Now, in the course of time, however, in the last, you know, eight-ish months that Area 51 has been running, the guy who is the head of the CIA, Richard Mervyn Bissell. <sighs> Laney, girl, mm, I found myself. I mean, I'd turn my pages and they'd be talking about uh, Bissell. And sometimes they call him Mr. B. And I found myself literally be like, oh, like I'd sort of flirt like, it's him. <laughs> oh, it's him. I'm kind of a fan. He has ancestors, get this, that were spies for George Washington. <gasps> oh, oh, your favorite. <laughs> oh, Lord. So he's out there. Different. He's the head of the CIA and everybody likes him. And he's sort of become the de facto headist guy. Okay. Right. They call him Mr. B. The Lockheed engineers who are designing these planes are, like, going up to him all the time, talking with him. They're crunching. They're talking. They're navigating. They're doing all the thing. And then the Air Force guy, Curtis LeMay, is getting fucking mad. He's, like, the third wheel and is like, uh, uh, I never said that we had to fly the planes. And we're totally <laughs> the Air Force. Like, is that even fair? You know, like, he's complete. <laughs> and, and which is actually really... <laughs> That is actually a really terrible representation of Curtis LeMay because he was a cigar-chewing World War II vet. He, like, <laughs> literally dropped fat man and little boy. Like, this guy is, like... But I I can't help but read this history and just be like, sit down, Curtie. Like, he's such a whiny... <laughs> he's so mad, Laney. He's just mad. 
And he's and he's fucking pit and he's telling everybody about it. What about us? Mm-hmm. Literally. Well, I can't. We we're supposed to be more involved. We're the Air Force. Come on. It gets so bad, girl. President Eisenhower has to come out and personally intervene. I oh, wish no. I could give you more details than that because my imagination has made a whole <laughs> thing. Okay. If the president's telling you to go to timeout, then you are a problem. Maybe you should not have your job. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more, right? And can you imagine a worse team to have to have a timeout? Be like, head yeah. of the CIA, guy who dropped the first <laughs> nukes, who is just like a hard on for war. I need you guys to shut, sit the fuck. Like, I'm sure that he was like, give me Stalin any day. I'd like to talk yeah. with Stalin again. He was at least sort of a li- good listener, you know? Right. Um. So he... Eisenhower, after his personal intervention, though, and and their and their needed timeout, goes. All right, here's the deal. You you guys are having a beef. You can't work it out yourselves. Then here's the official line: the CIA is in fucking charge of Area 51. Sorry, buddy, Bissell. Easy. He oversees. He's gonna be the guy. He's gonna oversee the whole thing. And he to reiterate, ouch. To reiterate this point, he tells Curtis LeMay in the Air Force, your job is supportive. You are here to support the CIA, to support Lockheed in any way you can. And if you know what, you're so hungry to be useful and you're sitting over here going, what about us here? I'll give you a job. We want you guys to start flying the personnel from Burbank out here to Area 51. Prior to these Mm. C-54s, they've been taking Uh these private little, you know, crafts, and it was sort of inefficient, and it was expensive. So let's streamline this. Air Force, here's your new job, these C-54s. Girl, they'd been doing it one month before this crash. Oh. Oh. So Curdy, little Curtis LeMay, gets one little job, and he just kills to eight people. You know what I mean? He didn't personally. Right. So he wasn't fine. But oops, (laughs) it's definitely the Air Force's fault. So this crash, so all that drama had already been happening. Now there's this plane crash. Ooh, I bet (laughs) Kurt was just screaming. I bet they were kicking dirt. Ooh, I, ooh. (laughs) Man. Oh, I bet that was a lot of fun. So they fire the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Okay. So first thing Bissell does. Yeah. So first thing Bissell does was like, nice work, Kurt. We're going to go ahead and fire the Air Force. Also, these C-54s were drawing a lot of attention. We didn't mm. need people seeing these, you know, military planes. So he goes, hey, Lockheed, you know a guy? And they hire this very creepy company called EG&G. Oh, they're sort mm-hmm. of like, I mean, it's hard, frankly, to even explain. They're basically the CIA, FBI, military's just like favorite little dark company. They make shit. They do shit. It's who knows. But they have all the money they want and no oversight. <laughs> Who ultimately bring us, yes, Janet Airlines. Now, some of the theories were that Janet was the wife of a guy. This kind of makes mm. sense. Mm-hmm. Some people said it stood for just another non-existent terminal. Oh. Mm. But that sounds That's kind of made up. It does yeah. kind of feel like a stretch. Um, but, but despite all of this, despite the drama, despite the crashing of the C4, girl, we make the U2. And mm-hmm. she's beautiful and she's great. And we know that, right? I told you it flew over and was was up enough and, and capable enough to do a reconnaissance mission on the crash of some of its own engineers. Crazy. Right. So now that the U-2 is ready to go, Eisenhower uh, is like, okay, so I just want to be super clear, though. I really, really, really want to get pictures of Russia big time. But I definitely don't want to start World War Three. 
Right. It would be best if we didn't do that. So, you know, (laughs) please make sure. And Bissell, it says to Eisenhower, do not even worry about that. Don't even worry about that. We don't think that they'll even be able to see this plane. Even if they can, there's no way they can shoot it down. And even if they do, there's no way anything that from that height and that stuff would be survivable. So don't worry, Mr. President. And this is a big deal because at this point uh, in 1956, we're still at least pretending to be best buds with our... I mean, we are going to places, one arm around China, one arm around the mm-hmm. Russians, just like, mm, remember the big W we shared in WW2? God, you guys were good. You were so scary and you were so loyal and uh, right? Even though we know we've already gotten these fucking... Roswell and <clears throat> these mm-hmm. the, the Horton brothers like we know but we're still pretending to be buds to the point where in June of 1956 the premier then of the Soviet Union Khrushchev mm-hmm. is still inviting folks over to come look at all of his cool war machines which we do too we still are doing nuclear testing and inviting all of our communist allies to be like look at that pretty spooky huh right. <laughs> have a safe drive home you know <laughs> And Khrushchev does the same thing. He invites us over and, and is showing a bunch of diplomats the, the weaponry and the Air Force and the stuff. And he's like 58 different delegates of all these countries and everyone's hanging out. And it's pretty friendly. And we're, of course, pretending we don't know what these planes are and that we haven't seen them before. And, you know, whatever. <laughs> now, we have not yet flown the U-2. It's still in preparation. It is, it is, it is not yet taken its first over-the-country, like, foreign voyage yet. But it's in preparation. And after this big parade is like usual, like the real party happens after, right? Khrushchev invites all these folks over to Gorky Park to sit (laughs) around the picnic table and, and swill vodka for a few hours. As you do. As one does. And I, I know I've told you, I encourage you to like read this book. This scene of these guys (laughs) sitting around Gorky Park swilling vodka was so vivid and so interesting to me that I had like such a hankering for vodka all day. I was like, God, yeah. Just an ice cold glass of vodka. Fuck, that sounds fucking great. And Khrushchev, and he's long winded and he's just toasting everybody and they're throwing back vodka and he's had a few in him, mm-hmm. right? And at one point during this <laughs> vodka fest around a picnic table, Khrushchev leans over to the US representative mm-hmm. and says, So you saw the planes? Do you want to see the missiles? Oh. And the dude's like, Fuck yeah. Right? Of course I do. And Khrushchev says, then stop fucking flying your airplanes over our country or we're going to start turning your airplanes into coffins. Oh, like you'll see our missiles up close. Try it. Yeah. And dude, I mean, it. He says this out loud, girl, at a party, like a hush falls over the picnic table. Everybody's like, Jesus fucking Christ. And then, (laughs) and dude is like, uh, you know, I'm sure he's answering like a diplomat. I don't, Mm -hmm. certainly you're mistaken. We would never. And like I said, we haven't flown the U-2. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. We hadn't done the U-2 yet. We had (laughs) flown a few planes over their territory in the Arctic. And that's probably what he's talking about. But he didn't even admit Mm. that. He was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. At this moment. Laney, another U.S., like, uh, you know, he's sort of an attache, like an assistant to one of the ambassadors, mm-hmm. is unnerved enough and obviously feeling some feelings about this, like, scary confrontation that's happening <laughs> and takes his vodka and tries to just sort of, like, coyly throw it away, like, dump it out in a plant. Mm-hmm. Khrushchev sees it and is like, you fucking pussy. 
this fucking guy. Look at how the U.S. are cowards. Look what they do. Look how insulting they are. Look at what they do. They throw our <laughs> vodka in the fucking grass. This poor kid's like, oh, my God. He pours him a new one and makes him drink it. Oh like, it's gosh. a fucking frat party. <sighs> oh, my God. Okay, all of this, I tell you the story to sort of illustrate that Khrushchev is like a thin-skinned, boisterous, suspicious kind of ego like i don't know what was going on with him but it was, he's that was apparently part of his personality uh-huh. um and knowing that that is his personality it probably doesn't help to know <laughs> that in two weeks two weeks after this angry vodka escapade the u2 flies all the way across russia girl and takes pictures of his house while he's sleeping Oh. Oh, undetected no well you know what when we come back for part two <laughs> i am going to detail <laughs> um the amazing first flight of the u2 and we will get to the last flight of the u2 after this break this podcast is part of the deluxe edition network to find other great shows on the network Head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Brad. And I'm Denise. We are the host of World's True Crime Podcast. Every Monday, we release an episode researched by me about the most heinous criminals throughout history from across the globe. And then every Thursday, we will release an episode from me about disappearances, UFOs, the unexplained, and strange history. To lighten up the episode, we take part in movie trivia at the time of the incidents. You can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We also can be found at worldstruecrime.com. Hey, before we uh, hop back aboard Janet Airlines, it is my pleasure to say thank you to my first ever Patreon subscribers, Tony W., Oh, girl, yes, you are my first ever subscriber. Number one, you have my eternal devotion. Ryan S., I love holding hands with you. It's just so warm and cozy. And Jennifer C., your generosity made me clench hard and then pee a little. (laughs) Now, these generous supporters are not only helping me buy books and invest in software that allows for remote recording, but they are also getting bennies for their support. For example, after each episode airs, they have exclusive access to bonus material, additional stories from the research and commentary from me and my guests. They can also choose the subject for an upcoming episode and get personalized hilfs right up their inbox. (laughs) Right? Want me to hilf your birthday or anniversary? Come on, let me give me that chance. But don't sweat it. If you can't donate, look, I feel your love just because you're here listening. It means the world when you share us with your friends and leave us a review and, of course. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. I think we might be misleading ourselves by thinking that aliens are going to be even humanoid. I agree with that. Um, And also that they would be interested in us. Right. Like in theory, if you have the technology to get to Earth from wherever you're coming from, which is really fucking far away because we know there's not life close. Right. um, Then why would you be interested in us? We are like 
peasants to you? Totally. Well, and that's where I think the answer to that question is part of what creates some of the intrigue. Because it's like, well, yeah, why would they? And some of the people who believe that, like, the, the flying saucers or even other examples of aircraft that we don't know now are sadly definitely Russian, is, <laughs> um, is that we have this technology and because we got it all you know you can really pinpoint in a map the technological advances of the human race from 1947 phew, on right or even the manhattan mm-hmm. project 1942 on like things went gangbusters the idea that like the railroad was a cool new thing less than a right. hundred years before we get nuclear fission is just sort of a holy shit that really feels like a huge advance and so right. some people say, well, then we must have then found some alien technology. That, that is one of the explanations for it. We found alien technology and we used it. And it looks from the outside like we just suddenly discovered a bunch of shit. But actually, we're, we were stealing it from aliens. And then other people say, yeah, well, no, fission, nuclear fission, all that stuff, that was ours. We actually did organically come to this science. But mm-hmm. once we did, that was what drew the attention of the aliens. Once they were like, uh, wait a minute, are they going to blow up their planet? That was when they really started sniffing around. So even among UFOologists, <laughs> there is a causation question that just makes that a right? Oof, deep Well, pool. and also I feel like back when all of these things were happening, like there was no internet. You know, we don't have the technology that we have now. So if we don't look at it from a 2023 lens where we know better in theory, you know, or it's just fun to believe things sometimes, you know? Right. But like back then, that was the only logical explanation for some people because they couldn't fathom things like the internet and and technology beyond what they currently had. Definitely. And there is a lot of truth to the fact that there have always been unexplained aerial phenomenon recorded literally throughout human history. In fact, one of the guys that came out after Roswell, because the Roswell incident, as as we noted, was one in a series of sightings mm-hmm. that were sort of shared by multiple witnesses over, you know, a, a series of places of close proximity. And at one point, the dude sort of tasked with explaining to the American public what was going on said, listen, it probably is UFOs, but you shouldn't be scared because... We've been seeing them forever. And they talk about celestial uh, phenomenon, cave drawings of these weird mm-hmm. humanoid figures and flying saucer-shaped things and the records from, like, old monks and isolated places out in the middle of nowhere describing technology that seems very for so he was like you know and he i i would like kind of love that press conference because you're like dude <laughs> he like simultaneously like ah uh, it, it but it's because it is probably aliens we don't have proof <laughs> that it's aliens we don't think it is but it probably is they've been around forever nighty night <laughs> so know? reassuring when last uh we met the U2 was almost ready to go. And it is now, my friend, Independence Day. Girl, it's the 4th of July, 1956. Oh, no, it is. I mean, right? You have to wonder what came first. But yes, it is the <laughs> actual 4th of July, 1956. We've got a lot of, uh, you know, kids from that look like they're in the Back to the Future are on their <laughs> right way to Doc Brown's garage. And um, the U2 is ready to fucking go, girl. She's been tested. Pilots have mm-hmm. worked out all these kinks. We've stopped crashing. We did our mission test over, sadly, the crashed remains of our engineers. And we're ready to go to Russia and take some aerial photos like we were goddamn ordered and designed to do. 
So, first thing in the morning, our pilot, his name is Hervey Stockman. That's Hervey. Hervey. I had to check it. Five Hervey, not Harvey. He's sitting in a secret base in Wiesbaden, West Germany. He probably, he's in a very cool-looking flight suit. He's huffing pure oxygen, <laughs> and he's getting ready for the flight of his life, right? The plan is to take off at 6 a.m. He does. The plane goes straight up. The incline on this thing is one of the many things that makes the U-2 seem otherworldly because it's uh-huh. kind of taken off into a rocket. And he... It's so inclined that the people on the ground are just kind of waiting for it to like flip over backwards because it oh, seems okay. like it's about to, and it had <laughs> sometimes, <in> the, <laughs> but it doesn't this time. <laughs> it goes, <clears throat> it goes straight up, and he's climbing and he's climbing, and it's and it, oh my god, it's going so well, and then he gets to a certain altitude, and just as trained, just as designed, he holds on for a minute, lets the fuel in the fuel tank expand, lets the oxygen in his blood do some stuff same kind of some of the same techniques about rising up slowly right from the water mm-hmm. we've learned the hard way you got to do this and then <laughs> uh, bam the next thing you know buddy's at seventy thousand feet and he wow. is going to be there for eight and a half hours no food <laughs> no water no pissing no poop, obviously <laughs> and this is what he's getting he can see the curve of the earth he can see the black sky of outer space above him i mean holy Wow. Shit. And the camera's doing its thing and it's taking tons of great pictures and it's taking pictures of the coastlines and it's taking pictures of airstrips and it's taking pictures of places that we know about. And then if we see something we didn't know about, we take a picture. And here's the general overall information that we're getting from this flight, which is the Russians seem pretty laid back right now. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, wow, our camera looks great. We are totally flying the route we wanted to fly. We are totally seeing the areas we thought we could see. And we're seeing detail that tells us the guns, for example, the weapons that are like attached to the side of their tanks are all aimed down at the ground. Like no one's looking up at the sky. No one's trying to get us. We can see that like tanks and things and airplanes, they're all lined up like you do in a quiet airplane where you don't plan on taking those planes anywhere for a minute there's not a lot of movement they can tell what's been harvested what hasn't and just in general yeah they do not look poised for war they don't look like they're gunning up for anything and then they were like well fuck shit (laughs) i mean great because our plane is great our plane looks great our pilot's great our cameras kick ass it did everything and but we just kind of know that like our enemy's not up to anything and then ring 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 phone Russia wants to know what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) because they saw we start looking at these we take a closer look at these photos right of the everything looks peaceful and upon closer examination of these photos we can't help but miss all the fucking MIGs that are flying down there at 30,000 feet that are trying like a team of desperate flies to get up there they're scrambled We see them and they are desperate, girl. We see that they come up and they obviously run out of oxygen and terrible and then they go down to safety and they try again. And we know that ain't good for those pilots, that they are in a bad state and they've been shooting, but we the bullets, as we knew, couldn't get up to us. Mm -hmm. And so after they see on the pictures, they're like, oh, they totally (laughs) knew (laughs) that we were there. Why were they surprised? Everyone knew when you did your test flight. Right. Everyone knew. Fuck. Exactly. So shit. 
But now the question is, is Kerchev, this hot, this hothead, this vodka swilling mm-hmm. hothead, going to come throw his dick at us right away? Or is he going to like talk to the press like, oh, and everyone's just sort of like, you know, like when your mom, like your mom goes through your purse and there's cigarettes in there. And then she like <laughs> leaves and you're like, okay, so oh, did she see the cigarettes? She doesn't want to talk about the cigarettes. She's going to bring the cigarettes up later. <laughs> I'm about to get like, oh, and you just live and feel, you don't know. And you're kind of hoping. And then after a while you start to think maybe they didn't even see it. And they're like, ah. Anyway, this is what we're dealing with. When is mom going to bring up the cigarettes, right? Right. But Khrushchev doesn't say shit publicly, which makes sense, right? Because same reason we wouldn't. Because he'd have to admit to his people that he got, that they got the jump on us, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, And so Eisenhower gets these bad calls. Eisenhower's hearing about it. Obviously, Khrushchev tells some people in the government, I fucking saw your planes, you fucking fucks. And what's the deal? Also, how about this? It was the 4th of July, you cunts. You did this on the 4th of July because Khrushchev, that day, that time, at the same time that we were spying on him, he was being a gracious host, showing around mm. some American diplomats. 4th of July, we love America. Good for you guys getting your independence. Fuck you. He's mad, right? <laughs> And Eisenhower is like, yeah, all we found out was that they're generally not up to anything. And now they're fucking nowhere up to fuck. And he tells Bissell, quote, I've lost enthusiasm. For, for the project? Okay. Yeah. I've lost enthusiasm for the project. And that's a fuck. You know, you can read the writing. Well, we're going to lose a job. And Area 51 is so much fun to work on and all these engineers and everyone's got all these ideas. And we do think the Soviets are up to something. But like, yeah. And then... The best and the worst news in the world for everybody (laughs) happened on October 4th, 1957. So that's just over a year after this U-2 flight. Mm -hmm. They launch Sputnik 1. (laughs) What do you know about Sputnik? Um, It's, uh, isn't it, it orbited Earth? And it was like gathering information, correct? It was the world's first satellite. Yeah. yeah. It was an 184-pound silver orb called Sputnik 1. Because they, you know, shocking, they had their own Area 51. It's called N1188, I think, or N288. Honestly, I don't know if it's two, like, Russian, num- I, in any event. N11, N88, very cool, probably <laughs> looks very cool. Eisenhower suddenly becomes very warm again. <laughs> To the idea of sticking it to the Russians. Because we're like, yeah, no, the U-2 did not apparently pick up on the fact that the Russians were able to launch a satellite into space. Um, but we knew we didn't get all over Russia. Like, we knew we didn't see every, like, little corner of it. But it does give us a reason to keep our shit up, right? They launched a satellite into outer space. And also, we don't know what that satellite can do. But we're fairly sure that it can take pictures, and so all of a sudden, everybody who works at Area 51 starts getting these daily schedules that they have to keep around in their pockets that show when they think the satellite is over Area 51. So that you can literally kind of scuttle inside all of your little, like, whatever you have out on the runway. You can, like, quick put away, like, little cockroaches when the Sputnik um, is overhead. But all of a sudden, man, Bissell and Curtis LeMay and everybody out there at Area 51 just gets a brand new injection of funding. Whatever little oversight, whatever tiny amount of, like, budget questioning they had is completely out the window. And it's, like, embarrass the Russians at all costs. Right? <laughs> It's not petty at all. It's not petty at all. But also, we also know the U-2, for all that it can do, is kind of fucking junk now. 
Like, we still right. use it. We bought a bunch of them. We have a bunch of them. The Air Force has a bunch of them, and they have a certain advantage. But they can be seen. They know we got them. It's, I like, out now. We've had, they were like, so they start working on this other super-duper secret spy plane that is uh, codenamed Oxcart. <laughs> However, I don't want to get into Oxcart yet because I really, I honestly got sort of emotionally attached to the U-2. <laughs> with or without you and so i before i I leave it i do want to tell you about how the u2 leaves us we go ahead in time a little bit so where i left off sputnik has been launched that was in 1957 it's now three years later they're developing this other new super duper secret spy plane but we want to take the u2 on one more very important mission and this is may 1st and it's 1960. The U-2 has been improved a little bit. We paint. We wanted to paint the bottom with this like radar reflecting paint, but mm-hmm. we just kept crashing because just that <laughs> amount of paint makes it just heavy enough to mm. fuck up all your other calculations, and it like just can't quite work. And then they were trying to add other materials, and that would fuck up the camera, or fuck up the speed, or fuck up the. High. It just it was like it's such a perfect calculation, you can't mm-hmm. really modify it post production without getting in trouble. But we think that we have found this new sort of ally paint that can fly with it, and we're pretty sure it re- re- reflects enough radar. That it doesn't make it totally invisible, but it might look like mm-hmm. a bird. Like mm. it might, it might just not be visible enough to actually get anybody to chase us. We're willing to take a gamble. On May first, nineteen sixty, we're in Pakistan. It's hot as fuck, and we have the secret base out there with a U two and a U two pilot named Gary Powers and Gare Bear. Oh. <laughs> And Gare Bear has already done a bunch of very exciting flights. He's been shot down. He's crashed in China. He's done secret missions all over the place. This guy knows the U-2. He's ready. He's been sitting in his fucking suit at 6 a.m. three days in a row now, getting ready. <laughs> and every day they're like, nah, it's too cloudy, right? Because the whole point is this thing's going to take pictures. They can't have cloud cover. It'll fuck it all up. Right. And, um, and this is a big deal because his whole plan, when he gets the green light, is to take his sexy ass up as it does, straight incline up to 70,000 feet, and he is going to fly all the way across Russia, girl, from Pakistan to the Arctic Circle, and then he's going to land in Norway, which is amazing. It's like the first time a U-2 has ever taken off from one base and landed in another, and Mm -hmm. um, going all the way across the Soviet Union. Man, we're going to get some some good stuff. And on his way out to the plane, one of his commanders stops him and asks him if he'd like a gold coin. The gold coin is a suicide pill it is like uh, a small gold you know and you keep it in your pocket kind of sure precisely and there's been enough crashes into enemy territory and some guys take it some guys don't but the idea is you rub the edge with your finger and a little prick uh hits you and you're dead in seconds wow and he has never taken it before he's always said no mm-hmm. but on this one he says yeah okay and he takes it <laughs> Sits on the plane, and oh my God, we're doing it. We're not going to get canceled today. They give him the all clear, and he takes off. Now, they can't talk. They can't, you know, they can't afford radio communication. Right. So the only way they tell him that everything is good and to keep going is one click, like on his mm-hmm. ear. And then he knows it's all good. And if he hears something else, it's like abort, abort, abort. So he's going up. He's doing the thing. He gets the click, bing. He knows, okay, he's up. He's going. Things are going well. Oh, girl. Uh-oh. May 1st. Before the sun is up, 
Our boy Khrushchev gets a crazy knock on the door from his staff, buddy. There is a high altitude something that has just crossed into our airspace from Pakistan, and it's just taken a hot cut across the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. And Khrushchev is walking. He's like, oh, my God, May 1st today. These cunts doing it today. <laughs> May 1st. It's like it's May 1st is a big national holiday, man. They're going to have parades uh-huh. all day. They got the banners out. It's love of Mother Russia and these cunts. And they did it on the 4th of <laughs> July. Oh, he mad, right? Right. And he gets on the horn and he says to everybody <laughs> who's capable, <laughs> you shoot this shit out of the sky. By any means necessary, and you do it as a position of national fucking pride. Okay. So how do they reach it, though? Exactly. That's what they're like. Well, yeah, buddy, we're not not shooting it down because we like them, you know. <laughs> and our buddy Gary Powers up in the plane can't help but notice they be coming. And they're doing the shit. Mm-hmm. They're doing the thing. The MiGs, they're flying around. He sees her shooting at him. He sees her kind of crazy. And he doesn't like it. I can't imagine... You know, it's like swimming. Right. You see a shark. You're like, I see you. You at the moment do not appear to be a problem, so I'm going to keep swimming. But, right? And he keeps going. He just literally ignores him. What is he going to do? And mm-hmm. they can't apparently reach him anyway. But then he notices that they are tracking him. They're they're sort of triangular. Like they're flying in different directions. One will kind of un- un- underneath him. And he's like, okay. Then he sees out of the window an airstrip that does not exist on any of his maps. Hot diggity. This is precisely why we're <laughs> up here. He hangs a hard right to go look at this airstrip. And it turns out that this thing is called Christum 40, which is like Los Alamos and Area 51 put together. Okay? And they don't want us. They don't want this. <laughs> and they have certain means. <laughs> That we don't know about, that they didn't know about, that Mm -hmm. nobody else, you know, the means necessary. And these fucks point a missile up at Gare Bear. Uh And they shoot a missile into his U-2. Now, Uh Lanny, buckle up. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Gary survives this. You will know that when (laughs) I tell you this story because... That's how we know everything that happened next. But I want to tell you now, I'm not making this up, and neither did the author of the book. What I'm about to tell you is Gary Powers' personal account, okay? Uh And I told you, he'd been done shot down before. This guy's been to these rodeos, right? He's falling through the air (laughs) in his plane, (laughs) in his U-2, from 70,000 feet after seeing it get engulfed in an orange flame. Fuck. Mm -hmm. Okay. The thing with falling from 70,000 feet is that you get to fall for fucking ever. <laughs> like, like right. you have some time to think, you know? Yeah. And does he and not have a parachute? He does. Yes. Okay. And he has an ejection seat. So, yeah. Okay. Right? He's got options. Ejection <laughs> seat. He, he then kind of notices his position from all this stuff. He's been, his shit got rattled from the explosion. Mm-hmm. That if he pulls his ejection seat, he's going to cut his legs off. <laughs> like, the way that they're wedged oh. in. Right. Which isn't well, great. If it's that or die, then. Right. But then, like, both your legs off, you're probably dying. You're probably going to die. Blood, of blood loss, like, yeah. So he starts to, like, crazy panic. And then he literally says to himself what he learned in flight school, what he had learned, and, like, all of his saying, stop and think. Don't panic. Which I'm sure that's what I would like to be telling myself, too. But then, <laughs> but then you're falling through the air in a ball of fire and you are panicking. Right. What are you going to do? But he doesn't panic. <laughs> 
He's like, okay, so we've only had ejection seats for a little while. What did we do before ejection seats that can get me out of this plane that won't cut my legs mm. off? And he's like, well, I'll open the canopy. Like, you just throw the canopy yeah. off, right? So he kind of knocks it. He throws the canopy out and whoosh, it sucks him out with his legs intact. <laughs> Great. And he's like, fantastic. But then he realizes his oxygen hoses and everything are still attached to the plane. He is still attached to the falling plane. And that's when he oh. blacks out. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. But 70,000 feet, girl, he comes to, he's still falling. <laughs> right. <laughs> Only now... He's disconnected from the plane, and he opens his parachute. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened. Was it aliens or fairies or angels or luck? Who knows? But he blacks out. He's (laughs) fucked. He comes to. He's less fucked. (laughs) (laughs) And he describes the feeling of falling as very pleasant, like a leaf sort of gently falling. And he also takes the time to acknowledge that it's beautiful. That the, like, Russian countryside is just, like, gorgeous and he can see the colors. And he lands in a field where guys in a truck get him fast, <laughs> right? They take him into their truck and they're not, they're not bad to him. They don't, like, rough him up or, like, treat him particularly terribly at the moment. In fact, they offer him cigarettes and the pack of cigarettes has uh, a dog on it, Laika, who oh, is the oh. first dog that was oh, set. Yeah. Up to outer space. And he not only notices Laika and knows who Laika is, but he, Gary Powers, notes it was a hell of a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> so I want you to pretend for a minute that you're Eisenhower. Okay. <laughs> okay. And you know Khrushchev. Uh-huh. And we know that they done shot down Gare Bear. We are working on a couple of assumptions. Okay. One is that uh, they know we were there. The plane crash, they probably maybe have some of the plane. We're correct about that. Yes, they do. We also assume that Gary Powers is dead. Because that's what fucking Bissell told Eisenhower. It was among many (laughs) promises. Right. They right. said, he said it couldn't be shot down. And then he said, even if it is, you know, all these things. And Eisenhower was like, ah, right. <laughs> I know. I knew you can't promise that shit, but I listened to you anyway. And here we are. So they're like, okay, okay, okay. Okay. Here's our cover story. Everybody get a pen. <laughs> Everyone's going to say the same fucking thing. That was a weather plane. It was a small weather plane with no surveillance, like surveilling equipment on it and no pilot on it. And it blew off course, and it was part of the national advert. Uh, the the weather data was coming into to the NCA, and it was just, this is all of us. And, and and the National Weather Service, like, yep, 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 yep. They love to blame weather balloons. That was totally <laughs> us because do you know how much we have to know what the weather's like around Pakistan, and also the Arctic <laughs> Circle, and we, you know, which is why you have to say it blew off course. But it's also one of the reasons why when you hear like when China said it was a weather balloon, mm-hmm. and we were all never like, believe that. Ooh, but it also was sort of a fuck you. Yeah. Because you fucks have been telling everybody it's a weather balloon since 1956. So it, right. it was a weather balloon. How about that? And we were like, no, okay. But it's just like a particularly <laughs> like, you know, painful yeah. station. So Khrushchev comes out. Okay. And this is so fucking, I mean, I kind of want to meet this guy, Khrushchev. He comes out, <laughs> gathers, gets every all parliament together, gathers all of the officials in the Russian government Mm -hmm. and brings out pieces of the plane 
And he says, the U.S. government told us that this is a weather plane. I have the plane. You can look at it. It is a surveilling plane. You can tell it is a surveillance plane, and they've been spying on us. So here's the question I have for you, United States. Is President Eisenhower trying to provoke us to war, mm-hmm. or are there militarists in the Pentagon going behind his back and spying on us without him knowing about it? Which Both is of it? which are dangerous. Right. And Eisenhower's like, ha, ha, ha. Well, either it doesn't have to be one of those two. It, uh, <laughs> and he doesn't know what to fucking do. And so he goes, oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. So he sends his press secretary out and he says, here's the lie. We're doubling down. You're going to go out there. You're going to say it was absolutely a weather plane. <laughs> oh, oh, that was the other, the other thing. Um, Khrushchev says, not only do we know that this was a surveilling plane, it did have a pilot on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So fucking Eisenhower's like, get the fuck. Was, okay, <laughs> here you tell him our it was it was a weather plane. It was a weather plane. We swear it was a weather plane. And that guy, the pilot, worked for the weather service, and he was a weather pilot. <laughs> <laughs> that is what the weather pilot does. That stuff, you guys, you know that. <laughs> okay. And then, like it's fucking WWE. After that, Khrushchev comes out with the living Gary Powers Uh and says, we have the pilot, he's alive, and we know he doesn't work for the weather service. So now (laughs) tell us the truth. And fucking Eisenhower is like, God damn. Now he does either have to say, yeah, we were spying on you or he, and I lied and I lied a lot. I lied for weeks. I lied over and over and over again for weeks and weeks and weeks to everybody. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, the military, the CIA, they spy on you. I don't always know. (laughs) <laughs> I don't always know what they're doing. I'm sorry. You can't do that. That'll make you look weak, right? Right. So Eisenhower decides to just sort of split the fucking difference. And he says, okay, that one, Gary Powers, that one, that was a spy operation. I authorized that one. But only that one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, at least he wasn't like, yeah, everything you've ever accused us of is true. All of our spying right. stuff that you're saying is true. He just said, okay, fine. Gary Powers was on a spy plane and I authorized it. So what? The U.S. public didn't handle that well. It was really the first time a president admitted to lying. But man, we're in this also Cold War, post-war. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't, people seemed sort of somewhat more, you know, forgiving about that. So Khrushchev, after that... Is like, yeah, okay, cool, no big deal. Um, but we, super quick, are just going to put a ton of fucking missiles on Cuba. <laughs> right? Buckle up. And everything just continues to escalate. And Lainey, my friend, there's so much. Gary Powers, by the way, spends 10 years, well, he's sentenced to 10 years in the Vladimir Central Prison. He's there for a while and he's actually treated really well and has a bunch of friends and makes super good friends with his cellmate and everybody really likes him. And there is presently something of a little museum to him, apparently there. (laughs) (laughs) That's like some of his stuff. And they were like, really nice. I know, crazy. And the U.S. is like, and they figure he doesn't really know a lot because even the pilots were on need to know. He knew Mm -hmm. how to fly the plane. He didn't know all the stuff you know he can only give them so much information and they figured he's probably already given them that information or maybe he hasn't but he doesn't know that much and they want to do this prisoner exchange Mm -hmm. so in 1962 the russians like how about you give us some of our bad guys we'll give you some of your bad guys and they aren't going to do it they're going to like leave gary there it's like 10 years big deal (laughs) right (laughs) 
men get this? Babs, Barbara Powers, Gare Bear's wife, starts having affairs. She's getting drunk all the time. And she gets pulled over and arrested for driving under the influence. And now the U.S. government is afraid that Gary, because he's getting letters, he's getting some correspondence over there, that Gary is going to hear about Babs. And he's going to feel so bad about, like, the predicament that his wife is in that he may then divulge secrets to the Russians. To get released early or something. To get released early or give him something so he can get back to Barbara before things really go off the rails. (laughs) So they agree to a prisoner exchange to bring Gary back, which I just think I love the story. Like, how to be an alcoholic wife and save your husband's life. Yeah, right. Get him out of a Russian gulag, you know what I mean? Just, like, have a few Long Islands and go for a drive. In any event, get this. He comes home, okay? Six months later, he divorces Babs. Because she's she obviously she's obviously a hot mess. Which I just find, like, he spent two years in a Russian gulag and then, like, six months with Babs and was like, unbearable. This is like, worse. I want the yeah. prison back. Get me out of here. Um, but he does, don't feel too bad for him. He does meet a nice lady. They start a new family. He lives happily ever after, writes a scrape book, which I highly recommend you you read. And girl, it's, I mean, the stories, it goes on and on and on. I feel like, please someday, friend, corner me at a party and ask me to tell you everything I couldn't fit into this episode. And I will tell you about the spy plane, um, the ox cart, and I will tell you some of the horrible stuff. Because the fact is, the stuff I'm not getting to is a lot of the nuclear testing. Mm-hmm. that they did between the Manhattan Project and Frankly Today. And it is awful. It's tiresome. It's just billions of dollars of waste after billions of dollars of like earth-killing, warmongering mm-hmm. waste that we're not spending on infrastructure. And then the animals that they just want to see what happens to the pigs that they chained up to the, you know, and you're yeah, like, I don't want to hear the, about that. <laughs> that's not the history I want to fuck, you know? That's history I want to fuck off, and I that's not what we're here for. <laughs> But if that's what you're thirsty for, read the book and and you can have it. You can have it all. Uh, well, I am so grateful that you assigned this subject to me, Lainey. I really had a blast. And um, I hope that you just continue to, like, keep all them little critters alive and well out there in Atlanta. <laughs> Will do. Hopefully no more amputations. That was a very stressful week. <laughs> For oh, both me us. and Luna. <laughs> I imagine. See, but if she gets one more, then you can give her one of them little carts that are so cute. <laughs> oh, it'd have to be so small. We'll get somebody down at Area 51 to engineer something especially awesome. Perfect. <laughs> for Luna. <laughs> uh, well, give my regards to Atlanta and thanks again. Thank you. Thanks again to Lainey Pejos, who, by the way, is also a Patreon subscriber, swoon, (laughs) and who you should check out on Etsy. She makes these very cool nerd-forward things, right? Like uh, Lord of the Rings Rawwood coasters and Star Trek tree ornaments, right? Go check her out. She's at Master of Some on Etsy, or you can see the link in our show notes. Our next episode is an absolute jaw-dropper. All right, it's the story of three young women in the Netherlands during the Nazi occupation of World War II whose work with the Dutch resistance included seducing and killing high-ranking Nazi officers in the woods around their village. Man, it's insane. You won't want to miss it. In the meantime, the research, interviews, editing, and marketing for Hilf are done by me. And if you want to buy me a coffee or keep me smoking the top-shelf weed... 
consider being a subscriber at patreon.com slash hilfpodcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Kat Perkins. And a reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode or by emailing us hilfpodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. This has been Hilf, history I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party and everybody's coming. Ha, ha, ha.